strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. We're here. Varun, my friend, you are in a different location for today's conversation. The attic, I believe you're relegated to right now. <laughs> I am. I am. Yes, it is attic. I mean, I'm just so annoyed by my kids running around the house all day. So struggle is yeah. real, my friend. Yeah. So I am, uh, I'm excited to chat with our guest today. Are you ready? I'm ready. So he is a designer, a creative capital investor, labeled as one of the most successful companies in Texas by Inc. Magazine. He's a mentor at Capital Factory, host of the Hustle podcast. So he is uh, familiar with podcasting, which is always fun. The co-founder and head of design at Fundsize, Anthony Armandaris. Anthony, welcome to the program. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. With an intro like that. <laughs> Thank you for all the nice, nice things you said. It's all you, my friend. You make it easy. <laughs> so um, we like to start the show off with a little question uh, around a myth, a myth you'd like to bust, a bogus strategy or misconception that you'd like to smash, something you'd like to set a record straight on. So what do you got? What do you want to clear up? Uh, I think for me, I think the the myth or that um, that it's too hard, too difficult, or too risky to invest in junior designers. I, I think is kind of bogus. Uh, if you look at the um, the extraordinary amount of job positions that are open right now, and how every hungry every company is hungry for talent, both for in-house jobs and agency jobs, and no no one is really they're all they're all competing for the same um, staff level, principal level, lead level roles, and having a really hard time filling positions. Whereas there's hundreds or hundreds of thousands of, of junior people that are highly qualified for the work that uh, go through 500, submit 500 applications before they can even get someone to respond to them. And then they, they most often don't, don't get jobs. And I think that that's um, crazy because I think that um, the uh, junior designers, especially if they're career switchers and they come from adjacent creative fields, um, come to the table immediately with a higher equivalent or higher maturity level than most senior designers and house have they're hungry and passionate to do the work and if you invest in them they'll stay with you for a very long period of time a lot longer than the typical 18 months that someone stays employed at a at a tech company in in the united states and i've seen um i know i just it just breaks my heart that that it's really difficult for those people to, to find jobs and i often find that they're the best um, some of the best uh, types of people that you could put inside of your design org. And I wish it was, uh, I wish more people would invest in taking risks and training and, and um, giving those, uh, those people a chance. What do you think is the hesitation, you know, by business owners um, that, that, that is something that we need to smash, you know, from your perspective? I think a lot of it has to do with management overhead. Um, mm -hmm. I think people are worried that, the more junior the person is, the more that's how difficult it is going to be for them to manage and guide that person along the path and get them in a position where they're contributing at the at the right level. I think if I mean, and that might be true for 
a segment of those of, of early career designers, but for the, the type of junior design that I'm talking about, uh, I think that's a, a complete misconception. I've seen, I've seen junior early career designers with uh, less than two years or less than a one year of experience run circles around senior designers. What type of designers are you referring to here? Like, you know, because there is, it, it could be a very controversial topic for many of the companies because I know people who would never work with the juniors because of the reasons you mentioned that, you know, management have problems and time it takes to train them and all that. And I agree with you partially as well, because we have hired many people, like we had an internship program, we had training programs where do recruit people who are right of the college, you know, uh, but there is, you know, pros and cons of both. But in your opinion, for your industry, for the work that you do, spe specifically, you talk about design designers. So what kind of designers and what type of work do you think can be more valuable and well suited for the juniors? And I don't, I don't want to make too many assumptions about pe people because, you know, humans are all great. But I think we, the, the type of designer that I'm talking about is not someone that comes from university. You know, a lot, a lot of the, a majority of the people that we work with that come straight from university barely know how to use a calendar or email. They may be highly talented as a designer, but they can't operate at a certain maturity level that's ne necessary for doing enterprise design work. Enterprise design work is more about understanding people and maturity levels and way less about the actual design work. So people that have had five or 10 years as a career as a web designer or as a photographer or you know, in customer support and stuff like that with only a year's worth of experience do way better in enterprise design settings because they know how to talk to, they know how to act like big boys and big girls and facilitate discussions between two stakeholders. And that's mostly what design is about, less about pixels. It's, a, it's an interesting conversation that we're having, well, that we're having, but just in general around career pathing. I saw actually a comment on LinkedIn this morning too, in terms of where people were coming from and how they got to, how they got to the roles that they were in, you know, regardless of the industry, but the idea of, you know, uh, people who may have been college dropouts or people who may have done uh, other types of alternative careers early in their 20s, you know, for lack of a better way to explain it, and where they end up in terms of, of, of leadership positions within these, you know, whether they're agencies, or organizations, or consultancies, or things like that. I think it's a, it's an, it's a, it's an, an interesting conversation to be having within our current environments too, and the way the value is placed on people coming out of school, you know, what, and I like your definition of junior being a little bit different than, you know, career age, it's rather than, you know, versus experience. Um, it's, I think the idea of coming to the table with a little bit of a different experience that provides them with the I think professionalism is the right word that I'm going to use there, um, allows them to gain the skills and experience within, you know, the job they need to perform, as you described. Um, I think people discount that, you know, yeah. it's hard to represent on a resume is where yeah. I was headed with this. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is really difficult. And, 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 and of course, it depends on the environment, right? The team environment, like you, you can't just bring on early career designers and put them on you know, assign them to a team, like they have to be in environments where they're actually learning um, and just guidance of like where to get the learning that they need when 
you can't provide it to them. So you can work at external partnerships and stuff like that. It also kind of depends on whether the work is kind of more gen generalist versus specialization. You know, like we don't expect early career designers to be really strong at visual design for a lot of people on average, it takes years to hone in that craft. But for, for people that understand that, you know, in enterprise product design, um, you're mostly going to be working with the visual design language system that's already established by a company, right? So you're not being asked to like design net new visual design systems. You're asked to use that design system and solve business problems with that. And so I think it, 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 it kind of, you can definitely set those people up for, for failure. But I think, I think that's the thing that maybe enterprise uh, design organizations should take advantage more often because they've invested so much in design systems and other practices that help support the orgs like, you know, product management and all these other things. Like it is that because of some of those things, it's a little bit easier for those types of individuals to come in and contribute. So, so clearly you have found some success in this process or in a way of working with junior designers. So can you elaborate more on, or maybe more specific um, on a type of project or a type of client that you might have worked on where you have brought on the junior designers and how and what process did you adopt? Um, did they work with the senior person? What was the role for them specifically for that piece of work? How do you, you know, how do you how would you um, disalign them with the with the senior person, right? I mean, so that you know, there's clear rules and responsibility for both junior and senior. Yeah, that's a hard, that's a difficult question. Um, just because, you know, there's such a variety in, in projects and variety of, you know, cultural environments with clients. And so I think you kind of kind of look at all that sort of stuff. You have to look at the person and figure out like on terms of the hard skills and essential skills, like where are they at? Make sure that aligns with, you know, personalities with clients, like really do personality matching, look at hard skills and soft skills. Yeah. Um, if it's like, um, you know, in some environments, it could be uh, environments where de like designers are discreetly staffed within specific product verticals. And so then you need to rely on sort of culture to support that growth, like things that happen behind the scenes at the agency is like um, sparring sessions, critiques, um, hand like external hands-on help from creative directors behind the scenes that are involved in the projects or embedded leads in those projects that can kind of span those verticals to help those people grow. Yeah. If it's more of a um, standard agency project where like our team is leading the effort versus the client, then you have like design directors and design leads that are there every day. And sometimes you just have to kind of weigh that out. So sometimes we've had the luxury of taking an early career designer and putting them through into three different styles of engagements over a three month period of time to see where they're going to do best and where they're going to grow the most. Yeah. And sometimes we don't have that luxury and we just have to, we have a specific need and we just have to make sure that we're making a, a, a really strong project assignment from day one. Yeah. How do you, how do you communicate that to the designer themselves? You know, cause there could be a level of paranoia if you're moving them around between and you're testing them out. Is there a tip or trick that you have in terms of, or do you just tell them, here's what we're doing. We think you're great. We want to try you in a couple different scenarios so we get to know what works best for you and what's best for us. Or, you know, from a managerial standpoint, I think that's a healthy part of the conversation as well. Not only the benefit of the agency, but the staff 
I, I wish more people would ask those kind of questions, but like I was alluding to earlier, these people are just hungry for someone to say yes to them. Mm. So it's more about like, how can I get a real job as fast as possible? Like, what, what is it going to take for me to do that? Because, you know, for better or worse of the situation, by the time they've done, you know, six months of real work, you know, they're going to be for, far ahead of their cohort, for example, if they're GA graduates, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, um, at least based on our team, that seems to be the sentiment, like, how can I, you know, like, I know that I want to work with this company. How can I, what is the best way to get my foot in the door? So I think people are, are pretty flexible about that. And I think that also there's less uh, conceptions about like what to expect. Um, some people, when you're interviewing them, one of the, one of the, one of the probably most important discussions is discussion of, a, well, do you, all things considered, knowing you have years to figure this out, do you really in your mind see yourself as an agency person or an in-house person? And that conversation right there can help determine what type of engagement or client they should work with. A lot of the engagements we have feel like agency engagements and 50% of them, you know, feel more like in-house engagement. So, you know, there's things like that, that we, you know, we use to help them figure out what to do. Like, you know, do they think they want, do they think that their end game is a design at, agent, at an agency like FunSize or someone similar, or is their end game like, you know, getting hired by Twitter, right? That, that can really affect, affect a lot of um, insights on, on the best way to uh, grow them. Well, they doesn't even know what the end game is. I think that's a lot of the, the, the conversation too around, you know, not necessarily getting a real job, but getting a desired job for now and testing, yeah. seeing if you like it, does it stick? What do I do next? You know, a lot of times in my early career, I was in-house and people kept saying, well, you can't get that job unless you work in an agency. You can't get that job. I was like, are you freaking kidding me right now? Fine, I'll go get an agency job. You know, it wasn't because I wanted to do it, but obviously it ended up okay because we're all having this conversation but it's an interesting thing that the market dictates in a lot of ways too so Perun, did you have a question no yeah no no, no no i think we can move on to the next one i think this is a good conversation uh, well then let's talk about a little bit about um your the structure of your organization i know in our our, our, our pre-conversation you know creating a new business was something that we had talked about whether or not, um, whether service should be part of your offering within your organization or whether it should be a separate entity on its own. Um, you know, would love to hear, maybe we start at the beginning a little bit cause I know you guys at FunSize do a couple of things. Um, I would say more than probably a couple of things but there was some conversation around that specifically. Would love to hear your perspective on you know, how do you evaluate that? Well, how is that a decision that even comes up? I think when my wife and I started this business, we didn't really understand what kinds of decisions we'd be forced to make if we were successful. And different companies have different goals, right? Like a lot of agencies, their goal is to just keep growing, just keep growing, just keep growing. And some, some agency owners like realize, okay, well, we've hit the extent of the amount of growth we want to have. And that's essentially what happened with us. Like we, we reached a, we reached a, a magic size where we, we, we have had deep evaluation of numbers and culture. We said, okay, this is the size where, where, where culture is the best, where the right, we can get the right kinds of clients and the right kind of work where the, where we're as profitable as we can be. 
and you have a lot of success, right? You have clients that want to key clients that want to keep working with you. Well, if you tell them, no, they're going to quit. They're going to go to someone else. So how can you keep, how can you balance that? Well, the answer for this, well, okay. So step back, like as an agency, you know, we want to be hired for our expertise um, because they, you know, clients believe in what the kinds of results that we can produce with our methods and our people. But we also realize that most of our clients, because of the kind of clients, we, we only, we primarily only work with enterprise design teams and their number, like usually they're, you know, a, a big important mission of those teams is to build these roles in house. So a lot of companies started asking us about staff augmentation, you know, like, can you help us, you know, find a researcher or a product designer that can sit in this design org. We, we value you as an agency and the types of designers and diversity that you can find in people, but we really don't want your flavor of work. Well, we entertained that for a while, but then we realized that that is just a completely different sort of culture and all that sort of stuff than what FunSize is really offering. So we did decide to break that off as a separate business so that we can continue to serve those clients and earn revenue but not have to put our own people in those projects because it's not a cultural fit for us. And to continue to maintain long relation, like a, a, a good client for us is, is a client that we can continue to work with for two, three plus years with multiple work streams in each account and maintain that and serve the client for what they actually, on both sides of what the design leader needs, the design leader clients that we have, they need experts, they need people to do the work, but they also need to hire so the second business is another pillar to help serve all of the needs that design leaders have. And it's, um, you know, um, and it, it was just, it was just a different, um, in all sort of aspects of mission, goal, culture, KPIs, how you measure success, financials, target, and all this, the ways that it, the way that a financial organization would, um, measure the success that it just made sense to separate it out. It's, it, it's really a choice of managing culture to make sure that our team stays the size that it is. It's not a decision to make more money. It's, it's about protecting uh, what we believe is um, critical. So what is the model right now that you, you, you follow? Uh, it, it, so it's not the staff org. Uh, most likely it's something like retainer or fixed cost projects that you do with them. How do you determine or, or what, how do you come to the, come, come about the pricing and how do you, uh, you know, put together your, you know, engagement model with them? Um, so there's, there's two, I mean, if you just distill it down to the most simplest form, there's two kinds of clients that we work with, enterprise design teams and, and startups. So I'll tackle the startup stuff first because that's easier. Like with startups, the only kind of work we're interested in is early stage. Um, early stage work, we gravitate to female owned businesses, minority owned businesses. And we're really looking for opportunities where we can impact the initial product, the, the, the initial product that's gonna go to the market, the positioning, the strategy of that product, the validation of that product, the brand of that product, and the design of that. And then we wanna be done, right? Cause they need to work on that in-house. Um, those for us, like we, we, we kind of know after nine years of doing it, how long they take. So those are always done in like retainer uh, you know, dedicated team model with a fixed weekly cost. They usually average between eight and 13 weeks. 
and we use the Moscow methodology to manage the chaos of of um, acceptance criteria. Uh, if any, if you guys want to talk about the Moscow method, I'm happy to uh, go into that. But it's the best way we found we can be agile and be true to form as working as a the way an engineer wants to work, but managing the scope for an agency. We do not do fixed bid work at fund size at all. Zero, zero fixed bid work, with the exception of saying that this engagement 12 weeks is this cost, right? Um, but um, we, we, any, any, anytime someone asks us for a fixed bid, we were, it's usually, sorry, we're not interested. Um, now the inter, the enterprise um, design work, uh, these in-house teams, I'm, you know, it's a kind of a combination of designing new things for these people, for these organizations or evolving these current products. So they're usually look there. These people are thinking in terms of hiring, right? They're, they, they're trying to hire. So as an agency, we position ourselves, okay, this is what our cost would be for a year half a year, quarter, whatever. And we, um, you know, we, we, we embed with them. We call this an allied team model. So imagine like two circles, like client organization culture and our organization or culture, Venn diagram in the middle is this like special sauce, which we think is like culture and design management. And we believe if that's done right, we can staff and maintain work streams with these clients for multiple years with, without losing institutional knowledge. Um, because you have to, it, it, that model for doing work requires that both companies uh, appreciate and understand each other's cultures, values, the way they do work, what success looks like. You know, clients don't want the people, you know, you know, both teams need to make sure the designers are motivated, growing, evolving. Are they on the right work streams, moving them around, all, all that kind of stuff so that you can, you can effectively have like an agency running work streams to, that outlast in-house teams by double or triple in terms of tenure. That's the two things that fund size does and the staff fog we are not interested in, which is why we created a different business for that. So it's not, um, we wanted to intentionally separate that outside of our agency. So our people know that it's different. So our clients know that it's different. And if you want, if that's what you want to buy, we'll try to help you, but you know, we're not managing it. You know, it's, we're just helping you meet people, right? That's all we're doing. Like we're, we're helping you find people that can do the work for a period of time under our MSA. And hopefully you guys fall in love with each other and you can hire them, but it's so different than fund size. It doesn't belong in fund size. So that's, pro that's purely a recruiting side of the business where, you know, you are just doing staffing for the client and they deal with the customer while fund size is focused mostly on doing the work all in-house and as a brand, that is what your positioning is. Yeah, think about it on a sliding scale, like all agency yeah. work, halfway embedded with, with mutual responsibility for the outcomes, staff yeah. being fully, clients fully responsible for it. So that's, that's the way we sell that. And as you go through those services, the prices get incrementally more expensive. Um, because as you go on that far right of like staff augmentation, fund size really doesn't have much to gain from that. Um, and we can't manage it, so it's riskier. So that's kind of the, the summary, but like, I think it's important because we're, what we're trying to do is holistically serve design organizations and, um, and trying not to have an ego about it because a lot of teams don't really need agency experts. They do at times, but they need to build teams. Yeah. What they really need. 
So, well, I'm curious to know, um, so you, 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 you have positioned yourself very smartly and very focused on um, just working with enterprise design team. At what point did you realize that this is what you wanted to do? And what was the thought behind that? Did you find some success at that time? There must be something that you figured out. Like, you know, right now people struggle with the problem of, you know, um, being a generalist or a specialist. And especially in the agency world, agencies tend to go after pretty much everything where the business is. Like, you know, so there are full, full service dev agencies, which will do strategy design, dev, everything. And then there are design focused agencies, but still they would do every type of design. You kind of focused only to work with enterprise design. And you mentioned that was not how you started. You were like doing you know, many things, but at some point you did decide that this is the way you want to do it. Um, I mean, how long did it take you to get to that point? And then that is the first part. And second part, how do you foresee the future? Like, how do you think it can, like, what's your future strategy going in that direction? Like, you know, so I'm kind of asking two questions well, together. You know, I think uh, number one, you know, I mean, different for everyone, but for us, like when we were starting out, we had to grow, right? We had to, most of our clients were startups. There's nothing wrong with that, but startups want everything. They want it their way. They want it now and they don't want to pay anything for it. And, um, but the work comes with a lot of auto autonomy and excitement for designers. And you can do things like branding and create these things from scratch, right? So that work is important to our mix. But the thing about working with specifically selling to other design leaders is that the first sales conversation, there's immediate empathy and understanding and value of each other's position. You don't have to pitch a design leader. You do yeah. not have to submit a proposal. You know, you do not have to do, do these things. You just speak the same language as them and, and, and just boom, you're gone, right? And then those companies, you know, uh, will fund all the exciting things you want to do, the, the raises you want to give your people, the company trips you want to do, the, you know, maintain, you know, you can forecast work years in advance, you know, exactly to the cent how much money is coming in, right? Like, that's what you need, right? When you're trying to run a sustainable business, you don't want to be wondering where your billings are coming from. You want to know, do how much money exactly to the cent am I making, not this year, next year. And so it's like make, balancing those things for us is, is really important. I also think that um, um, enterprise work provides a, a place for earlier career designers to be battle tested because I think, in my opinion, I think you want your most senior people working on startup work, not your most junior people. So um, because startup founders are bonkers, nuts, insane people, they have to be to start businesses. And you, you just, you, you have to build a certain maturity level and skill level for people to manage that well. And so it, um, there's a lot of reasons why we do this. But I think for me, it's, it's mostly that um, these people understand who we are, what we do, and we don't have to prove to them that they should invest money in design, they're, they're ready to do it, right? There, again, there's different maturity levels, like people that are, you know, older, 100-year companies that are going through de design transformation that need a little bit more of something else. There's a lot of different, there's certain kinds of opportunities there, like help them learn how to do design in-house. That's great opportunity. 
then you have like the Facebooks and the Instagram of the world that they, they believe in their mind, oh, we know exactly how to do it. And there's kind of different opportunities, but I think it's also healthy for designers working in agencies to kind of also with have the experience of understanding like, what is it, what is it, what would it feel like if I worked at, at Facebook? What feel like if I worked at Capital One? What if I wanted to work with these people but never moved to the Bay Area to do that? You know, like we're offering those experiences for people so, you know, like a lot of designers on our team have spent, you know, you know, one or two years at Facebook doing work, you know, one or two years at Volvo, think of their resume, man. I mean, like um, to do that within an agency with in-house level autonomy and trust, um, it's just, it's just an extraordinary sort of experience. I, at least the way we thought about this years ago, thinking of ourselves as a small company in Austin, Texas, where a lot of these in-house teams weren't hiring or investing in course that's a lot different now with um, post pandemic but prior to the pandemic like how many you know like you, you know it's just kind of a different world um, yeah I was, I was gonna ask that I mentioned that because I mean uh, the point that you mentioned uh, many many designers can work remotely don't have to go uh, to the Silicon Valley uh, to do that pre-pandemic but now after everybody is doing that so that's I don't know if that, that is a challenge for you or not how are you dealing with that. But I also liked your earlier point about, um, you know, when you talk and when you work with the uh, design leaders, I think it's easy to sell to do because you're talking the same language and there is less effort in selling. I mean, you are not selling, you are basically, you know, strategizing right on the first call. So yeah. that makes a huge difference. I totally, you know, agree with that. Um, so talking about pandemic now, you know, how has that changed for you? Like what, you know, is that, well, are you going in a, like, well, let me ask you simply, like how did that change the way you have been working or you have, you are working now versus earlier? I mean, for me, it's been really stressful because we've been doing this kind of embedded work we used to do it every day together in the same building, right? Yeah. And you could still build culture, but then, then the pandemic happened and we were doing that embedded work separately, which creates more silos, a huge dilemma, right? Because yeah. at, you know, for some, not everyone, but for some people that have, let's say someone has been spending a year or two on, let's say Volvo, at what point did they just think, oh, I work at Volvo, yeah. you know, and trying to manage that is really important, manage the identity of these teams and trying to support them in ways to help them create that identity for who they are as a squad for that client, but also how do they, you know, where are they in the fun size um, whole thing? Uh, it takes a lot more management to, uh, to do that and investment and other people in the agency that are driven to think about culture because I think that if that's not managed well, people leave, right? I mean, especially in an environment where people, you know, people at fun size now can work in Austin for any of these companies. So you, there has to be a reason why they're working at an agency. That's one thing. Number two, um, a lot of reasons why, you know, it's not the only reason, but a common reason why someone would choose to work at an agency is variety. Yeah. Um, so the old model, I think it like old Anthony pre-pandemic was like, oh, okay, they have to rotate, right? Every six months or so they have to rotate clients. But I've learned that with the right trust and autonomy with these clients that they can rotate within the clients. Like 
let's say that they've done e-commerce work on Volvo for a year, we got trust on them. Maybe now they can be moved to in designing in-car entertainment systems. So if you can just work with the individual to help connect the dots with them, what does this mean for me, my autonomy level, the way, the way that I'm growing, how can I get variety? Uh, you know, it's, it's a, just a lot more management kind of conversations. I think that um, we've had some attrition, but like way lower than, than, uh, than I was predicting. Uh, one, only one, we only had two people leave. Well, no, we had three people leave. One person that just decided that they wanted to just not work in product design at all anymore. And one person that decided that they want to start a, a business with their um, with, with uh, the brother and then one person that, you know, you know, decided to move on to another company. So, but I was predicting a lot higher um, attrition. Uh, it is something that it really keeps me up at night. Cause I often wonder like, okay, if the, you know, if you read the articles, people say, well, expect up to 40% attrition, yada, yada, yada. It's like, well, what do you do? Right? Like, do you, does that mean you should be thinking about building a bench just in case, you know, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really nerve wracking, but I know that our people are being, offered way more opportunities than they ever have before. And I guess my wife and I just decided that, you know what, it's not worth really stressing about. Like if people find value in what we have here, you know, we want to keep them and keep growing them, but we understand people will leave and we want that to, uh, that to happen. Cause at the end of the day, we don't really, we're not trying to hoard designers and we want people to have great careers. So I don't, I just don't know. I don't have a lot of experience in, in, in dealing with that, um, you know, we've always had very low attrition, but. Probably goes back to your earlier, your first comment, your first myth bust, which was, you know, it's the junior designer bringing them in. And there's, I think post pandemic, there's value, not necessarily financial gain, but also experience, the happiness quotient that you may get, satisfaction, job satisfaction, opportunity, you know, it, go, it goes, uh, it says a lot for how you treat your employees, you know, and the authenticity that you've built and the trust that you've built there, which, yeah, which I think, you're you right. know, I, I mean, that has that. to be it. You know, people are, it's a question that we would never have asked 10 years ago. Tell me about your company culture. You ask that in an interview, they'd be like, what the hell? Get rid of this person. Don't, you know, now it's like on the short list of questions that you must ask before you take a role, um, you know, and it's commonplace. So there, it says a lot for what you guys have built at fun size. I mean, even looking at your website prior to this conversation, you guys do a lot of cool stuff. So we just have to be people first because, you know, other than the computers we have, we have, we're all, you know, it's agency is a people business. We have no IP, you know, like we, you have, we have to think about people first and as many different spectrums as possible because that's it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, that kind of drives everything from, you know, the, you know, like the way we build our culture, the, the way we staff work, the way we sell work, um, the way we bill, the, the things that we do, the, you know, the reasons for, it's, it's it, all of these decisions for us are usually based from a people first angle. Um, and a lot of times we'll make de uh, decisions of growth and build in creating new services and stuff purely because someone on our team really wants to do that, right? Like, yeah. you know, you know, three years ago, we really didn't have a strong research or facilitation offering and we didn't think we would do it, but we had a couple of people who are like, this is really important to me. So we're like, okay, let's go create those services. Let's build you up as leaders in those areas. Um, so I think that, um, you know, I don't know, it's really difficult for me because, you know, I, 
it's been so long since I've worked at another agency, but I, I think that you, if people listen, if you listen to the things that your people are saying and you're willing to experiment a little bit, then you can kind of keep those people and keep them motivated. Well, it goes back to being, that's your differentiator in the market in terms of the, the talent pool, you know, versus going to somebody like a Twitter or a Facebook or even these larger orgs where you're a cog in a wheel versus you're the one <laughs> driving the car to keep the, the Volvo conversation going, which leads me to another question. You know, have you guys explored as you're thinking about staffing and you're thinking about, you know, uh, various attritions and the augmentation that you do? Do you, you know, we talked a little bit about contractors and, and outsourcing and offshoring. Yeah. Um, would love to hear, there's a couple of things that you guys do, I know internally, but would love to hear a little bit more about your perspective and your experiences there. It's a new muscle that needs to be flexed, but I think it's critical to our success at this point to have partnerships with other, other companies. Um, primarily for the first thing that I talked about, we want to stay this size, right? So how can we stay this size, right? That having strategic partners will help us stay that size, number one. Number two, um, like everyone else, teams are distributed. Like, you know, people have designers and, you know, in London and, and India and California and vice versa. And contributors on those teams need to be within a certain time zone in order to work effectively with those teams, right? So think about time zone bands, you know? Yep. So that's, you know, um, that's kind of new for us, right? Like that the industry is doing this in general, but then we have specific clients who are global, like, like, like Volvo was in Sweden, right? It's really difficult for us to work with the Sweden team because the time zone is too aggressive. So we've, we've invested in strategic partners and other areas, you know, like Iceland, for example, that are kind of closer. And I think that's going to be um, working with strategic partners, agencies, uh, you know, various strategic partners to do this is going to be radically imperative to our success being that our measure of success is maintaining the size of this business, not the financial growth of this business. But I think that having those partners also has a, you know, having partners will have a financial benefit as well. So it, it's just something that's new. Like I said, new muscle, like it's, it's weird for us, you know, cause we did everything. We used to do everything in house, you know, and a, you get an opportunity comes in the sales pipeline. We're used to saying, well, can we take it or not? What we're trying to learn now is like, okay, before we just say, no, we can't take it. Like, can we like, can we work with this group to help us do this? Can we work this group? Like, and it's just, it, it's one of those things that just, you have to practice doing it if you've never done that before. Um, it's not the thing that comes uh, to your mind first uh, if you're not used to doing that. Well, when I, it I think it is important. As you think about that, though, I think, you know, part of our uh, conversation was on when you talk about contractors and off outsourcing and offshoring, even, you know, our minds generally go directly to engineering in those roles. But I think one of the things is you don't always have to go to engineering, right? There's yeah. options for designers. There's, uh, I think, I think you guys have mentioned that you, I mean, a lot of us outsource our, our finances as in other ones. Uh, I, I think the word offshoring is just weird. You know, like to me that it sounds like, oh, I'm going to, someone else is just going to do the work instead of like, let's do this together, but in different countries. Yeah. I like um, to outsource is a much more appealing term. And I guess outsource does make sense, right? There's going to be lots of people that do really need rely, rely on something just to drive it. Um, 
I could see that happening for us, but I think for us, like it's for us, it's probably more about like how can we expand the global network of designers that can work with us, um, not okay, just give all the work to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, but uh, yeah, I think it's um, for me. Um, yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's important. I don't. I don't know a lot of people personally that have a lot of experience in like working with other strategic partners, you know. Um, but well, I think it's, it's a, I think it's really important. Yeah, it's especially you know as Jesse was telling earlier, like design is something that not many agencies or companies in general prefer to outsource. Um, you know, they 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 like to keep everything in house because so. For, for some reason, which I'm also not able to figure out yet. I mean, we talk to many agencies, you know, I mean, um, and we work with many agencies as well. And typically the type of work that they look forward to outsource is engineering, is development work. They would look for design everything inside, in-house, have their own people do initial work. But then when it comes to implementation and execution, they are, you know, they look for outsource because that is how things have been run before. But, um, you know, uh, but, but, and, and you're also like thinking about doing, you have never done that before. This is like new thing for you as well to, to explore. So it would be interesting to see how uh, that goes. And I would continue to have the conversation once you start doing that and see how was your experience, because that is one area where I think um, there's huge potential for some of the companies who can leverage because there are good designers everywhere, especially everywhere. after yeah. pandemic, you know, things are opening up very fast. So well, I think it, it also be. has like diverse diversity um, benefits, right? Like, I mean, if, if you're only, if a team is only like, you know, hiring like in-house uh, in California, that's a problem. If people are only hiring in the United States, that's a problem. Like if you're designing global products, really want a global representation of like, for example, if you're, if you're Uber, surely you want designers that are in India that understand the unique conditions of what it's like to try to find a car in India, which is very different than trying to find a car on a city street in an American city. Yeah. So I, I, it's, uh, I think like bursting those bubbles, it brings more perspectives uh, to the table it's kind of cool that people are thinking about this now, like having, you know, distributed teams and stuff. It's, it kind of sucks that it took a pandemic for that to happen. Well, it's, uh, I, I would agree with everything you said there. I think there brings, I think there's a competitive advantage even in pitching work, you know, or acquiring work um, or confirming, confirming work, depending on what you're pitching that you can bring to the table with a more global approach to it. I mean, we, we, we keep talking about Volvo and, and, and being, um, you know, it, I have not been to Sweden, so I would have to learn pretty quickly if I were gonna work in an account like that, or I have owned a Volvo, but that's the extent of my experience with the brand and what it's, you know, feels like. And so it would be interesting to be, a, it, it creates an opportunity for people to be able to give just a more global perspective. I know it, yeah. it's, it's like, I love watching the advertisements during the Olympics. I, I know this, this podcast recording is evergreen, but we're watching the Olympics right now. I'll timestamp it like that. Um, 
So it's just fun to kind of watch who invests in the Olympics and watching because those are global platforms in a lot of ways, what ads and how they represent things and what's come out of the pandemic there too. Yeah. So. And it's also responsible for teams, right? Like if, you know, if you're working, like we work, we also do work with like a computer company, computer manufacturer, and they have, they have designers everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's, responsible within limitation to ask your team to be available to the client within certain windows right but like there's an extent of what of what is to be like really draining on someone like no like no one in in austin texas wants to be having meetings at like six in the morning um for you know i I think it's better like i guess all i'm saying is i love this idea of like building teams that are within like windows of time across the global bands you know so that that yeah because it this product design work, you can't just do in a void. You can't design something and then give it to engineering. You gotta work with engineering every day, every yeah. single day, every day together, like talking all day long, uh, every day. And so I, I love that, 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 that could be possible. And yeah, like it's, it's uh, a lot of company, especially small agencies like ours have not developed a muscle for recruiting globally, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a client says, oh, you have, you have designers that are close uh, to like in, like kind of time zone. No, we don't. And how would we find anyone? <laughs> you know, like we can't recruit uh, like that. So yeah, it's difficult. Um, well, it's interesting too, that the time zone piece, that is a question that we come across frequently in terms of like, does your, does your team work within this time zone? Again, it goes back to being able to say yes to work. That's more interesting to you with a global approach to it, a global approach being, you know, people who are situated across the planet. Um, and you're able to say yes, because you do have a human or you do have a partner who's based within the time zone so you can work collaboratively. With some overlap, yeah. yeah. Right, with some overlap. But also the pandemic has forced us to think about, you know, hiring in general to your to the earlier part of the conversation where you don't have to be in Austin, Texas, you know, you can you can be wherever to be able to accommodate, you know, it goes back to hiring junior designers. It all goes back to your original myth. You know, come in full circle there. You can you can open up the doors and find talent in different places. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question about the future. So what for you as we look ahead into what's coming as this pandemic changes the way that we're kind of working in the world, what what's exciting for you about the future? What are you looking forward to? What's coming up that you're like, yes. You know, outside of week two of the Olympics. <laughs> I think a lot of people would disagree with this or may, may decide that they want to not live in this future. But I firmly believe without a doubt that the future of design work is a symbiotic relationship between agencies and in-house teams and freelancers. It's, um, it's too um, absurd to think that in-house teams can just hire in-house. Therefore, it's also absurd to think that in-house teams can only rely on agencies. And therefore, it's absurd to think that agencies can only hire in-house. That, you know, like I think all, all these people live in this future where everyone works together. They're different companies, but they have a singular mission and they work together every day. They don't lob stuff over the fence. They work together every day um, as a way to, um, you know, this is the demand coming from the industry. The agencies think this way. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's really important. Um, I think, and I'm, again, I'm talking about product. I'm talking about software design, um, things that 
revolve around conversations with other people to make decisions about product. I'm not talking about like designing websites or, or, you know, um, you know, things like that. I'm talking about things that take a lot of building group work. And so I think that um, more than anyone expects, you know, those three kinds of people will be um, necessary for each, each other to have for them to continue to meet the goals that they're, that they're trying to meet. Um, and I don't know if agencies, a lot of agencies want to want work that way or accept that. Um, but I, I do think it's, uh, I think, do think it's the future, like it or not. How would you best recommend those three parties get along based on your experience? You know, if that's the future vision and I'm not going to disagree or agree, um, although I agree, um, how do you see that working? What tips or tricks do you have if people are, are moving towards that? How do, how do you make that work? I, I might be oversimplifying this and I, you know, like, but it's just a different tax form. Like, in, in my opinion, if someone is a freelancer on our team, they're still a part of our team, they just pay their own taxes. You know, like if we're, if, if we're embedded with our clients for two or three years and that's the double the tenure of their employee, what makes us a different than their team member? They're just, we're just, they, we're just an expense that they can shut off easier and we pay a different tax form. Like, I, I think that it's those, it, it used to feel like these very strict boundaries, but I, I think that it behooves everyone to um, blur those lines because, you know, think about it like this. Like if you're a in-house team that has been asked by the end of this year, you will fill 56 design positions and every company in the world is competing for the same ones. I mean, come on. I mean, uh, there's ways to do this now that don't require like giving away equity or always doing this or that. We just think outside the box, you know, like agency partners, strategic partners, freelancers. And then of course your agent, your agency partners are going to need the same, right? To everyone's augmenting the augmenting and it's just constant augmenting. Um, and I think that that is what the, um, at least in my world of uh, doing digital product design um, looks like. So, uh, you know, piggybacking on that, I would like to also hear your thoughts on how, what do you look for um, in a strategic partner or a freelancer who is not part of your local in-house culture? You know, when you, when you said they will work very well together, at least that's the future you see, and you have worked with some of the strategic partners uh, across the globe already, um, at least to some extent, what do you look forward? Like, what is your expectations from them? How do you pick? How do you choose who is a good fit for you? Well, we're a small family owned business with a cultural mindset. So I want strategic partners I can dream with. Uh, it, need, it needs to be more about projects and rates. It needs to be more like, how can we do, do we love each, Do we really like each other enough that we want to have dinner together? That's really critical. Do we do, can we go beyond the business relationship and strategize about build, building building business opportunities for people? Do we care about each other's companies? Um, to me, it has to be that because there's no reason to just do something for a financial gain. Like, like again, like Natalie and I don't make any decisions based on finance. It's all about culture ad and we won't do anything that's a, not a culture ad. So like, for example, if we had, like, we have a strategic partner in Iceland, uh, Ale, uh, we just launched his episode today with a great partnership because they work well with our team they have also hired us and we work well with their team we travel to each other and we have dinner and we dream about the future together that's what we look for 
Well, this um, is a great, oh, did you have another question? Uh, I'm just going to talk outside work. What, what <laughs> else do you do? What, 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 you know, what, what are your passions? Like, what are you passionate uh, about? What do you do? I, I am super excited to be a dad. I have a three-year-old, so I, it's kind of weird for me to like, used to just be all about work, but over the last three years, I've learned to, about this dad thing. So, you know, love hanging out with my son um this dad thing <laughs> yeah um i I'm, I'm super interested in beer like I, I love beer i just love the taste of it tasting beer and whiskey i mean I'm, I'm not trying to sound like a lush but i just really love like learning about the process and the people that make this stuff and um what's your preference which one if you had to pick any beer Oh, my favorite beer is mm -hmm. um, uh, Jellyfish by uh, Pint House Pizza. Actually, it's called Electric Jellyfish. Um, That's a cool job is to name beer. Like, it's like naming ice cream. Like, where do I get that job? <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty simple. You know, I, like, I wish I had hobbies and stuff like that. You know, like, I'm, um, I don't. I thought, like, why don't I have hobbies? What's wrong with me? But I just, I don't know. I'm just kind of at, when I'm not working, I'm just thinking about my family and how to, you know, build the future for the family, trying to keep that balance with the business. And I don't really know. Cause like, I feel like I still got a few years left in me, but I would, you know, I'm trying to, it's weird when you go over the hump, right. When you're like, you spend your first 20 years in the industry, like learning and perfecting a skill. And then you find yourself on the other side of the hump and you start realizing, Oh, now I got to design the next 18 years because now I need to design my retirement plan. So like, I've just been in that mode. Like, how do I, what, how do I actually, how do I start designing the end of my career? Well, three year old kid in the house will give you no time to think about all that. It took me seven years. I have a seven and three year old and it like only after, you know, in this pandemic, I realized that I'm more passionate about doing hiking and stuff. I started doing that after COVID and one, my, you know, one of my kids is seven. So um, now I have some time to think about myself um, and things that I want to do. But yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult sometimes. I think that's one of the nice things that came out of COVID is like, it's giving you time back. Like I don't, I, I know the traffic in Austin isn't as bad as it here and we're in Boston. And you, you, we used to spend hours in the car every day commuting to and from work. I don't think we realized how invasive that was in our lives. And it's traffic in Boston is, is oh, legit brutal, man. But it goes back to your hobbies. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't, what do I, what do I do? I, I don't hike like he does, but I walk a lot. <laughs> spend a lot of time with my 12 year old dog. I don't have any kids, but you know, her friends. So, but I, I have one final question. How did you come up with the name Fun Size? Because that is an Ooh. absolutely killer agency name. Um, let's see. Is that a loaded so, question? Um, I was uh, working as a freelancer and my wife was uh, working remotely for an agency called Fjord at the time that we moved to Austin. And I convinced her that we should start a business together. And then I, I had a list of all these names. Like I'd, I'd always like gravitated to names for agencies that sound like 
super scientific. Like I used to work at a company called Behavior Design. I thought it was just the most badass name. Or like these other comp- like other agencies like Method, right? I thought they were just mm-hmm. ridiculously cool, this sort of scientific angle. And my wife was like, nope, um, we're going to call it Fun Size or I'm not, I'm not going to join this business. Um, but, but what Fun Size was, was is this idea of, um, it's kind of an oxymoron kind of concept. Like um, most, a lot of people didn't know this, but like my wife and I had been designing had a focus on mobile design before the industry moved in that direction. So like we would take, we, it was this idea that we would have meetings with people and people like, oh, well, you're just two people. You're kind of small and insignificant. And they would see the brands that we work with and the work they did. And they'd be like, wow, right? Like that, that name that intentionally sounds like small and insignificant, but like can do really big things. And it was also a nod to the mobile form factor because like in the beginning, we, we only did mobile work. And I think that we found ways to just grow that over time, like the way we think about, you know, teams and stuff like that. But that's really what it, what it was. It, the only downside to our name that people will put a space between fun and size or capitalize the S and then we have to correct them. But um, yeah, that's kind of where the, where the name uh, came from. It's, it's a good one. I, it makes me think of fun size Snickers bars, you know? So it's, it's good. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Anthony, you know, it was a pleasure. It's, uh, it's a good chat. So where, where people can find you. So the list is on link, the LinkedIn, on the Twitter. Um, your Twitter account also got a fun name with favorite shape. So uh, your company website, funsize.co. And then you have a podcast as well that we'll highlight here too. If you want to tell us a little bit, take a quick second, tell us a little bit about your podcast, Hustle. Give a little yeah. promo. Um, podcast has been like a seven year journey for me just to explore the the world of product design with people that were focused on building teams, you know, and asking the same question. So um, the, I usually talk with people who are kind of in the same space as me trying to figure out how to build teams, predict the future, build culture, you know, design operations and, and things like that. Um, and yeah, we're, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like, um, it's been going for many years about to hit a hundred episodes. I'm trying to figure out what's next. Do I keep that podcast going? Do I stop doing it to do something different? So I'm kind of in, in figure that out. So, um, please give it a listen and, uh, feel free to, uh, reach out if you know anyone that should be on the show. Sounds good. And people can find that at funsize.co slash hustle. So thank you so much. Um, That's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, tell someone about the podcast. Varun, it was a pleasure as always. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies.build.com. Plus, we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.